But do sit down and it'd be a real help um, to take hold of one of the Bibles nearby and turn back to page 1175-76 to this passage from Ephesians. We're working through this letter again at the moment. Um, while you're looking that up. Oh, there's also a little outline of the, the sermon as well on a sheet in your handout. If that's helpful to you, do look on with that as well. Somebody said to me after the 9.15 service, are you wearing a black tie this morning now that you're married? Um, it, it's a dark blue tie, and I'm, I'm very happily married all of three weeks, so don't think I'm in mourning about anything. Uh, uh, the rustling stopped. The rustling stopped, so I assume you've, you've found Ephesians again. That's good, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But let me start with you. You know how it is when you've invited uh, friends round for dinner. The meal is over. Um, you offer to put the kettle on. Coffee's available, but uh, one of your guests wants to know, is it real coffee? Have you had that question asked to you? Is it real coffee? These days, instant won't do. You've got to have ground your own Colombian coffee beans. It's switched on your Nespresso coffee system. Froth the milk with an Aerochino before it's recognized as a real uh, coffee. Uh, for me, and I imagine for uh, many of you, getting a real cup of tea uh, is much more important. Uh, it's got to be made in a pot, of course, a pre-warmed pot. Uh, two tea bags, I feel, are sufficient. And after it's stood for an appropriate length of time, whether you call that mashing or brewing, uh, you pour it into a cup that already has milk in it. Uh, that's a real cup of tea. Uh, there are many things that might look like a cup of tea, uh, but let me assure you, that is a real one. So if you come normally to the service and you come a bit earlier to have a, a cup of tea or coffee uh, over in the church centre before the service begins, uh, check it's real. Uh, check it's real. Uh, checking the reality of some things uh, are more important than others. So if you've ever had friends who've been out to the Far East and they come back uh, with a real Rolex watch that costs three pounds, uh, that won't bother you too much, I, I imagine. But uh, this morning, it's a, a slightly different question about reality. And the question we want to have in our minds is, uh, what does real Christian living look like? And it might be, perhaps, that you've been asking yourself that question over these past couple of weeks. Uh, am I living like a real Christian should? Uh, you might be a new Christian and you've just been beginning to ask it, you might actually have been a Christian for years, and you've suddenly realized you feel like you've drifted a bit. Am I living like a real Christian should? It's what concerns Paul in this next part of this letter to the Ephesians. And one of the first things, just to draw out, is that I think he seems to be saying to them is, understand there are only two ways to live. I understand there's only two ways to live. Uh, the way Gentiles live, and he'll talk about that in verse 17 onwards, uh, and by Gentiles, here Paul means people who are not Christians, and the way real Christians live. Yeah, I'll mention that in verse 20. In Ephesians, Paul's described God's amazing plan to save people, uh, give them new life for a future that is wonderful. It's a free offer of forgiveness and knowing God through the Lord Jesus and so you could ask yourself, maybe you found yourself asking, asking yourself this if you're a Christian, if it's that good, then why doesn't everyone want to live as a Christian? Is it simply ignorance? 
is it that people don't know about God? And, and won't the reason for not knowing be God's fault anyway? You sometimes hear people say things like, well, if God really is very good at hiding, isn't he? He doesn't make himself very obvious. And if you're not a Christian, you might think about that just now. Why is it that you're not desperate to become a Christian? I'm just slightly wanting it. Why are you not desperate to become a Christian? How would you answer that? Oh, just come with me to verse 17 onwards. and Verses 17 to 19, scan your eyes across that. And, and look at what Paul says about Gentile living, about living if you're not a Christian. And the first thing you notice as you scan your eye across it and you, you pick on some of the words is, is that the reason they don't know God is linked to their understanding. You see, Paul mentions their thinking. He mentions their understanding. He even says they're ignorant. Well, they just don't know God. But before we think it's only a matter of education, he tells us why people are ignorant about God in verse 18. And it's not that God is hiding. You see what he says? They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And the reason people don't know God It's because they harden their hearts. That's that Bible phrase that means a willful refusal to acknowledge God. It's not so much, I can't know God. It's more of a, I won't live for God. If you've got the little handout, you see there's a little diagram. The circle is meant to be your life and and God is pushed to the outside. It's saying to God, when it comes to my life, you're on the outside of it. I won't let you have your rightful place. You won't be in charge. And Paul says, that leads you on a downward spiral, verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. He doesn't mean everyone's as bad as they could be, but it's the direction of travel. Moving further away from God. Living in God's world but only living for yourself. And Paul says, you do that and you desensitize yourself to God. I used to work in a supermarket years ago as a part-time job, weekends. I was on the delicatessen counter, cold meats, cheeses. I had a little hat and an apron. It was very good. Uh, The butcher's department was was next uh, to the delicatessen department. I I had to go in there uh, from time to time. And I remember it it was always kept really cold. Whenever you walked in, it was freezing in the butcher's department. I remember one of the the butchers, he he was in there. They always had lots of knives and and cleavers and even a kind of electric saw for for cutting up the meat. And I remember one of the butchers was using uh, uh, the electric meat saw to dice up uh, some of the meat. You you just push it through. Uh, And he said he'd noticed there was an unusual amount of blood coming from this particular joint. Uh, Then he noticed his little finger sitting on its own. Um, He'd cut it off uh, without feeling it. He pushed it right through the saw. Off it came, sat on the side, blood coming everywhere, didn't notice it. It desensitized. Not even aware he cut his finger off. Uh, by the time he got to hospital, uh, it was too late for his finger. Now, excuse the rather grotesque illustration. I did quite enjoy it, I have to say, but excuse it all the same. But I think this is what Paul's saying in this passage. 
So people who say they won't live for God are, verse 18, eventually separated from the life of God. And they'll not feel it. They'll not feel it. So you understand someone who says, well, if there is a God, if there is a God, I'm sure he isn't the kind of God that's going to be bothered that I don't believe in him. It'll be bigger than that. I don't really feel like it's that big a deal. Paul says... That's exactly what you'd expect them to say. But it's not an encouraging sign. And perhaps you're even here this morning and, and you say you believe in God a bit, but you don't feel it's, that, it's not that important, is it? I'll come along to church from time to time. I believe in God a bit, but it's not, it's not that important. Isn't it strange that this not feeling concerned about God is one of the symptoms the Bible says should really concern you? Ignoring God in his world and feeling nothing? You're already becoming desensitized. If your fingers desensitize, as my uh, former colleague found out, it could be cut off from the life of the body. What will happen if you become cut off from the one who gives you life? Well, Paul says you will increasingly live for yourself and ignore God. I see it's a bit like what's written beside the, the little diagram on your sheets. It's hard hearts. This, this willful refusal to, to live for God leads to thick heads. I just can't think right about God. And thick heads that leads to futile lives. If I can't think right about God in life, I'll, I'll never think right about life. I'll never live right. And that's the really ironic thing, isn't it? Uh, This life is futile. It won't satisfy. Do you see the end of verse 19? Uh, Living for self instead of God leaves you with a continual lust for more. I start start living for myself and, and that's all I want to do. But it never really satisfies. You'll see it in Conrad Black if you've been watching the news. The wealthy, a former member of the House of Lords facing over 20 years in prison for defrauding his shareholders. It would seem not satisfied with his own wealth already. He wanted more. You see in divorce rates, won't you? People want more for themselves. So marriage promises that God expects us to honour are sacrificed for self. Will we see it in ourselves? A kind of living for self but never being satisfied, always wanting more? To offer life and God, we refuse. We harden our hearts and push God out. But, says Paul, a Christian should be different. You didn't come to know Christ by keeping God out. Verse 20, uh, he's talking to the Christians here. He's saying, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in, accordance, taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. How did we come to know Christ? Verse 21. We were taught about Jesus. It's an interesting little detail. Paul interchanges Jesus' name for his title. You know Christ by learning about Jesus. I think what he means is, as we're taught about the historical Jesus, as you look at his life and hear him speak, God gets to work in you by his spirit and you begin to understand that it's, well, it's that Bible word, it's, it's gospel. That this is good news. You, you start to be excited by it. And, and you realize that this Jesus is not just a man 
from history. Now, this carpenter from Nazareth, he is the Christ. Uh, that word that means he's, he's God's chosen king. He's the king of the universe. He's God come to earth to rescue people and, and lovingly rule them. As you're taught about Jesus, you become convinced he is the Christ. He's in charge. I don't know if you remember, there used to be a TV program I watched when I was younger called Record Breakers. I think Roy Castle presented it. There'd be all sorts of people on doing all sorts of things to get in, uh, in um, the Guinness Book of Records. I used to love watching the domino races they would have. Do you ever see those? They put on vast systems of, of dominoes would be, would be set up and then someone would push them down and they'd make all sorts of patterns. Uh, but the way it works is when the first one falls, eventually all of them will come down. And that's a little like when someone really becomes a Christian. Because if I acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, he is the king, everything follows on from that like a domino effect. It means, doesn't it, that up until that point I've ignored the king, but now I have to respond to him. See, when someone comes to realize that Jesus is Lord, if they respond to the good news, this, this gospel about Jesus, submit to him and ask for forgiveness, that's what the Bible calls repentance. It's changing direction. It's saying, I was living my own way, but now I'm changing. I've recognized Jesus is in charge. You've done that if you're a Christian. It's that other picture you've got on your handout. Oh, Jesus is no longer pushed to the outside. He starts ruling over all of our lives. And Paul explains it in verse 22. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self. I created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, the gist of what Paul's saying is, is when someone believes the gospel, there's a change of life. You put off the old self that always said no to God. You put off that old self that was always saying no to God, ignoring him, and you put on the new self, which says yes to him. And the new self is created to live like God, to be godly. So you see how it works. Uh, taught about Jesus, we come to know he's the Christ. And if I know he's the Christ, it must lead to repentance and new life. And because he's in charge now. Uh, last week in Ephesians, Paul, our, our vicar, was helping us see that if we're taught the truth about Jesus, if we're, it will unite us as a Christian family in the faith. We'll be united in the faith. And so we shouldn't split off from other true Christians. We, we need to work at remaining united, not falling out. Well, here the Apostle Paul tells us uh, something more. Yeah, the gospel must bring a change in living. Transformation. Uh, because there's someone else in charge now. We have repented of living our own way. See, real Christian living equals repentance and new life. And so you'll understand the point Paul's making in verse 17, right back at the start of our reading, where he says to them, I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. If you're a Christian, don't live like a Gentile. 
I don't live as if Jesus isn't in charge. You're not meant to say no to Jesus. It means we should be starting to really want to live for him. How should I feel if, if I meet someone who says, oh, they're a Christian, but they keep ignoring something Jesus asks them to do? Oh, they say they're a Christian, but keep ignoring Jesus. Uh, what if that's you? Well, it might just mean you're a very disobedient Christian. And that's not good. Uh, you need to stop being disobedient. Uh, don't live as if Jesus isn't in charge. And remember the Gentiles. Remember what happens to people who willfully refuse God's word. Their hearts start to become hardened to the point where they can't even think rightly about God. A Christian, you don't want that to happen to you. It might just mean that you're disobedient, but I guess it could mean something more serious. It might mean that you've never really understood repentance, putting Jesus in charge. And and that, in turn, might mean that you've never really repented, which would mean that you're not yet a real Christian. If you think that's you, it might be good to speak to someone about that. You could do that after the service, but I guess more importantly, you need to repent. Acknowledge that Jesus, who loves you, is the Christ and should be in charge of your life. Ask him to forgive you. Right, so the first thing this morning is, is that, is understand there are only two ways to live. And the second thing is, uh, be committed to Christian change. Uh, one of the marks of being a real Christian is repentance and new life. It's, it's that we change. Uh, now, just so we're clear, God doesn't save us because we change. It's not that if we come up to scratch, then he'll decide to save us. No, as, as you'll hear many times as we open the Bible together on Sundays, we are saved when we trust in the Lord Jesus. It's his death in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve that makes us secure. We can't add anything to that. We're saved as we put our faith in him. We're not saved because we change, but we do change. And because we're saved. And because change is an inevitable consequence of truly being saved by God, then it should be impossible to say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not committed to changing. See, if Jesus has won you over, if Jesus has won you over by his love in the gospel, if you say you trust him, how can you not want to, at some level, uh, to change and do what he says? Our change is all around us uh, pretty much all of the time, isn't it? We're, we're actually pretty good at a change. We change our homes our hairstyles, our body weight, our jobs, even certain things about our behaviour. Uh, we stop smoking, we change to energy efficient light bulbs. In the office we, we change our work ethic because we want to advance our career. Uh, lots of people change. Even our friends that aren't Christians are changing all the time. Uh, so what does it mean to be committed to Christian change? How do we know if we're just changing or we're really experiencing Christian change? Well, from verse 25 onwards, Paul gives us some examples of areas in life where change should be happening for Christians. I just scan through them. In verse 25, the issue seems to be to do with honesty, telling the truth. In verse 26, it's to do with handling your temper, how you get angry and the way you do that. In verse 28, it seems concerned about our work and possessions and how we distribute those, share them. 
In verse 29, it's, it's our speaking to one another. Guess what some of the younger students, guys, talk about our banter. Uh, the way we, we talk with one another and how we do that. In verse 31, it seems to be concerned about difficult relationships. How you respond to the people that really wind you up and upset you. The people that can leave you feeling angry or bitter. In chapter 5, in verses 3 and 4, it seems to be the area of sex and, and actually jokes about sex. He mentions all those things as areas where change should be taking place or examples of it. But let me draw out a couple of implications I think Paul gives us about Christian change. Now, the first one is this. Real Christian change is defined by the gospel. If you read through these examples, the change that's encouraged is shaped by something of the gospel of Jesus. Let me point out a couple for you. Let's just pick verse 25, the one about honesty. And Paul says uh, this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour. Now, why should we tell the truth to each other? Uh, because it's what good people do and we all want to be good people. Uh, because, as my mum uh, used to say, uh, people who tell lies always get found out. Which was inevitably the case for me when I was younger. But is that the reason that Christians are, are, are to tell the truth? Well, Paul says one reason is because... If we're Christians, we're members of one body. That's the reason he gives, isn't it? Well, that's a gospel reason, isn't it? But why should that make me truthful? Why should the fact that if we're Christians here, we're part of one body, make us truthful or help us be truthful? Well, we're united. We're not actually competing with each other. We're working together for each other's good. When I lie to someone, it's usually to protect myself. It's because I think it's a good way out of a difficult situation. It's to guard my own interests. It's because I feel vulnerable. How can I possibly tell you when I'm struggling? How can I possibly admit to a weakness to you that you'll think I'm rubbish? You might use that information against me. You might laugh at me. So I lie. I protect myself. But you see, we're united, aren't we? We're part of one body. Uh, we're not competing with each other. Uh, that means, uh, actually, to care for yourself, you need to care for me. You should want to care for me, and that means I don't need to protect myself from you. So I start to change as I understand the gospel. And as I gain confidence that I'm secure, I put off falsehood. And I start to become a more truthful person. It's not because of some kind of moral code I've decided to adopt. It's just that there's no need for lies anymore. The gospel makes me secure. And it motivates and shapes change in me. Oh, let's pick another one. Uh, verse 31, difficult relationships. Uh, Paul starts off by saying, uh, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, the kind of thing that comes out of difficult relationships so how does the gospel change the way we approach difficult relationships? As a church family, we'll face them just the way any family faces them. People will annoy us, won't they? Maybe they've done that already this morning. Some will say or do hurtful things. We'll be ignored or forgotten at times. We'll have those awkward relationships. How do you cope with difficult relationships? Do you avoid them? Do you just stay away from them? It's easy to become bitter, isn't it? when we feel we've been badly treated. 
Uh, I can't imagine there'd be any brawling that takes place at Fullwood. We're probably too middle class for that. But uh, the bitterness and the anger and resentment can build up. Uh, We can develop that kind of anger, can't we, that continues to simmer towards a person. So that even when their, their name is mentioned to us, we can feel a temper bubbling away. The difficult relationship that leads you to try and justify yourself by explaining how unreasonable the other person is. You even exaggerate what they've done. That's not really slander, is it? Well, how does the gospel change you? Well, it begins by saying that God's forgiven you and brought you into his family. That's chapter 4, verse 32. You're part of someone else's family. See, chapter 5, verse 1, you're God's children. You're living in his house now. So how does he handle difficult relationships? Well, he doesn't avoid them, does he? He faces up to them. He puts himself out for others. We did that for you, chapter 5 and verse 2. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Chapter 4, verse 32, again, in Christ, God forgave you. So, be imitators of God, therefore. His dearly loved children, you're part of his family now. He's he's shaping how the family lives. Uh, That's how we live in this house. See, if you want to know if you're seeing a Christian change in your relationships, it isn't really measured by the fullness of your address book or the busyness of your social activities. You don't measure good relationships as a Christian by the fact that you're you're out every weekend having fun. No, you ask yourself, am I more forgiving this year than last year? That's how you measure Christian change. Am I more willing to put myself out for the people I find difficult? But if you're finding yourself still becoming angry or bitter you're probably not getting to know God very well yet. You're not really understanding the gospel, so you're not being able to imitate him. You can't imitate someone you don't know very well. And if you're not imitating him, it's probably because you don't know him very well yet. So, so get to know him better. Be taught about him. See, Christian change is defined by the gospel. If we want to help each other grow as real Christians, we need to make sure we're getting to know God through his gospel better. We can affect all sorts of lovely change in people in all sorts of ways by being nice to them and lovely. And some of you are real sweethearts, aren't you? It doesn't mean it's real Christian change. Real Christian change is always driven by the message of the Bible. Oh, the last thing to say briefly is by way of encouragement. And it's this. Real Christian change always happens in the security of the gospel. We all have different temperaments, don't we? Some of us hear about change and you've already thought of ways God has been changing you since last year. And you're excited about it, you're encouraged. Others of us are more pessimistic. You hear about change and you immediately start to worry. What if I don't change? I want to. But I probably won't be able to. So you start to feel insecure about the things you struggle with. Will you listen to me as we finish? See, real change is inevitable for Christians. And it always happens within the security of the gospel. See, Paul is writing to Christians about their need to change, but but see how he views them. 
Listen in to how he describes them. He says they are members of one body, verse 27. They are already part of this body. They've received the Holy Spirit, verse 30. They've been forgiven, verse 32. They are God's dearly loved children, chapter 5 and verse 1. They're God's holy people, chapter 5 and verse 3. If you're a Christian, uh, those things are true for you. You are safe and secure as a member of God's family. He does love you and he's committed to changing you. So the question to ask, I suppose, when you're chatting with your friends from church this week is not, is this real coffee? Is this real tea? A good question to start asking each other would be this, wouldn't it? Are we living like real Christians should? That would be a good question to ask each other this week. For those of you who are married, it would be a good question to ask your husband or wife. Do you think we're living as real Christians should? Maybe you could look back through Ephesians for some of the other areas Paul mentions. See, real Christian living looks like repentance and new life. You could ask each other, do you think we're being committed to Christian change? Ask yourselves this week, are our lives being changed by the gospel? And as you do that, as you find areas where maybe you've not been changing and you need to repent, remind each other. God is at work to change us, but he keeps us safe by the gospel as he does it. Let's pray together.